The goal tonight is to make it through 14 and 15. What I'd like to do is uh, read a portion of 14, and we'll come back and touch on that. And then 15 and 16, we're going to read straight through, and then I'm going to come back and take the main thought of that particular chapter and find Old Testament and New Testament parallels uh, that would apply um, from the Proverbs. Much of the Proverbs is going to deal with um, uh, the tongue. We're going to see that tonight, especially in chapter 15. But uh, on Sunday, I took my text from chapter 14, verses 12, 13, and 14, but we didn't make through the verse-by-verse last Wednesday, so I'd like to back up and pick up with uh, verse 1 of chapter 14 in the Proverbs. And remember, uh, we we talked about this, uh, the Hebrew poetry here is contrasting uh, two thoughts, a righteous man against a wicked one. Um, and we, we will see that as we continue our study in God's word, chapter 14, verse 1. Every wise woman builds her house, but the foolish pull it down with her hands. And he who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is perverse in his ways despises him. Now, In the mouth of a fool is a rod of pride, but the lips of the wise will preserve them. Where no oxens are, the troth is clean, but much increase comes by the strength of an ox. A faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness will utter lies. And a scoffer seeks wisdom and does not find it, but knowledge is easy to him who has understanding. So go to the presence of a foolish man when you do not perceive in him the lips of knowledge, and the wisdom of the prudent is to understand his way. But the folly of a fool is deceit. Fools mock at sin, but among the upright there is fear. The heart knows its own bitterness, and a stranger does not share its joy. The house of the wicked will be overthrown, but the tent of the upright will flourish. And there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is a way of death. Even in laughter the heart may sorrow, and the end of myrrh may be grief. And the backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways, but a good man will be satisfied from above. Let's just stop there. And, uh, of course, th- th- these verses here deal with our text that we had on, on Sunday. And we pretty much put up the debate showing both sides of Arminianism. We had it up on the screen, and we went through that. And then we talked about, in contrast to it, Calvinism, uh, because it deals with the question the backslider is filled with his own heart, which brought up the question that we addressed on Sunday. Um, if a person as a Christian is backslidden uh, when he knew the Lord at one time, but let's just say he, de- he decided to check out, and um, oh, we could use any example. Let's just say he decided to want to live a sexually immoral life, and he continued in it without repentance. We call that he backsliding. Maybe that's something he did before he was saved, but now that he's in this backslidden state, what happens to him if he would die? Um, and we, if you want to get more in depth on that, we can, you can get our study from Sunday. We covered it per, uh, very thoroughly, I thought. But really, the answer to that question it comes to, uh, you have to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, where it says, don't be deceived. And um, it gives a whole list of people that are deceived, thinking they're going to heaven. But he says, don't be deceived. If you're sexually immoral, if you're an adulterer, if you're a fornicator, if you're a hom- um, homosexual, if you're a drunkard, if, if you're a liar, it goes, the list is there. But the, the main point is, don't be deceived. If you're living in that lifestyle and think you're a believer, then you're deceived. There are other scriptures um, that we alluded to. Um, I just pulled two out of the book of Revelation, Revelation 2, 
uh, the church of Ephesus was um, backslidden, and yet they had, the operation was full on. They were doing great. They had perseverance, works, uh, holding to sound doctrine, haven't gotten weary in doing well. They were doing everything right, but they left their first love, and the Lord says, um, repent or else. He asked him to do three things. He said, remember from where you have fallen. You were once, it was all about a love relationship with me, and now you're just caught up in doing works. And so he said, I want you to remember your first, your, where you've fallen. So he saw them in a backslidden state. And then he said, um, repent, which simply means get back to your first love relationship with the Lord. And then three, return. Remember, repent, and return. But then he says, or else. That should cause concern. And the or else was, I will come and I will remove your candlestick from its place. I will remove it. Now that that gives me pause for concern what happens to a backslidden church. Uh, There's an old Peter and Gordon song um, from my generation that says, I won't live in a world without love. Anybody remember that one by Peter and Gordon? I don't care what they say. I'm not going to live in a world without love. Well, neither, neither will the Lord, evidently, with his church. Because that's all he's really, really desiring of you. You're his bride. And uh, what if your bride was only busy um, serving, but never really having a love for you? Well, um, the Lord is saying to the church of Ephesus, I don't care what you do, I don't care what you say, I'm not going to be in a church that doesn't love me first, repent or else. Then in chapter 3, we went to the, to the um, church of Sardis, and he commends them for some of the things that they were doing, but he also calls them to repent. Um, and he says, uh, but if you overcome, if you get things back right, he says, then I won't blot your name out of the book of life. Now my point on Sunday is why even make such a statement if there wasn't the possibility of it happening? And who he's talking to is the church. So there's a, there's a balancing act of um, keeping the Lord your first love and um, doing what you can to maintain it. If uh, the Lord corrects you, um, a lot of uh, what we're reading in the Proverbs it tells us that a wise person is going to receive instruction, but a fool is going to harden his heart and doesn't want to hear, doesn't want to be corrected. So um, this gets back to verse 14, and I just wanted to touch on it again. The back slider and heart is filled with his own ways, but then a good man will be satisfied from above. There's, there's this contentment, and we, we use Paul as an example where he said, I've, I've learned in my Christian life that Whatever state I'm in, whatever happening at the time, I can be a, a happy camper. I can be content. I can be really, really blessed out of my socks, or I can be going through the most fiery trial, and um, I can still have a peace and a contentment in the midst of the storm. It always amazed me when the Lord um, was with these fishermen on the Sea of Galilee, and they seasoned fishermen were freaking out over the storm. They were sure the, the, the boat was going to go down. And um, mind you, these are seasoned sailors that are freaking out. They wake up the Lord who's sound asleep. He said, Lord, save us. We're going, we're going down. And he gets up, and one of the greatest scriptures in the Bible, he rebukes the wind. And a uh, famous verse that's one of my favorite, even the wind's and the sea obeyed him, and it was a perfect calm. And then he turned to the guys and said, boy, that, boy I'm sure glad you woke me up. That was a close call. And um, it was really necessary for you to, to do that. And boy, um, no, that's not what he said. He turned around and rebuked them. He says, so where's your faith? I said, we're getting in the boat here, and we're going to the other side. Now, if God says you're getting on the boat on one side, and you're going to the other side, do you think there's any force in the universe that's going to stop that from happening? Now let's make this practical. What fears do you have? What fears that come up where you really 
Um, instead of saying, Lord, comfort me because I got this fear, I think the Lord many times would say, well, just where's your faith at anyway? I'm here. I promise never to leave you or forsake you. But I watch people, when I see them get anxious about something, all you're telling me is where your, your faith is at. And, um, um, you know, Peter says that the trying of your faith is more precious than gold that perishes. But you're going to be tested. So that in the test, you can see for yourself just where your faith is really at. So if you have fears, to me, the opposite of doubt is not faith. The opposite of faith to me is fear because it shows that you don't have it. Fear is a, 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 an outward expression of your lack of faith. So the Lord was correct in rebuking the disciples. Guys, I'm in the boat. This boat ain't going anywhere. But um, I love to have seen that one. The day that uh, the, all of a sudden it went from that. Um, Judy and I watched the old movie in Jesus the other night, one from the late 80s, one of the very, very early ones. And that particular scene is in there. And um, except they didn't have it biblically right because they had him laying alongside the, uh, the stern side of the boat or whatever, when really he was tucked underneath sound asleep. But except for that, they, they had it down pretty well. All right, so the first 14 chapters, just a little review from where we were on Sunday. And a good place to examine our hearts, you know, of any fear uh, that you have. We're told over and over again, fear not. All right, 15 to 35. The simple believe every word, but the prudent considers well his steps. A wise man fears and departs from evil, but a fool rages and is self-confident. He who is quick-tempered acts foolishly. And we're going to capitalize, remember this verse where we get to chapter 15. And a man of wicked intention is hated. The simple inherit folly, but the prudent are crowned with knowledge. The evil will bow before the good, and the wicked at the gates of the righteous. The poor man is hated even by his own neighbor but the rich man has many friends. He who despises his neighbor sins, but he who has mercy on the poor, happy is he. Do they not go astray who devise evil? But mercy and truth belong to those who devise good. In all labor there is profit, but idle chatter leads only to poverty. And the crown of the wise is their riches, but the foolishness of fools is folly. A true witness delivers souls, but a deceitful witness speaks lies. In the fear of the Lord there is a strong confidence, and his children have a place of refuge. That's a great scripture. And the fear of the Lord is the fountain of life to avoid the snares of death. And a multitude of people is a king's honor, but in the lack of people is the downfall of a prince. He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is impulsive exalts folly. Now, in chapter 15 again, we're going to zero in on the very first verse, but it's being repeated here. Hot-tempered, I call them people that just have a short wick and it doesn't take much to set them off. Um, they're impulsive and uh, uh, folly. And we're going to be talking about Nabal, and that's what Nabal's name actually means. And we'll get up when we get to chapter 15. But a sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. And he who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker, but he who honors him has mercy on the needy. We got a text from Lane today. He's on his way. Just a quick update. I'm thinking of the poor and the needy, and uh, we got it so made here. It's, uh, life is really easy. We live in a bubble, and um, uh, he he texted us between Port-au-Prince and Miami um, for s- some things that we just came up that are needed uh, for the uh, uh, solar-paneled 
water purification system. And um, basically he was texting to make sure he could get the parts that's needed once he gets down to uh, Port-au-Prince. So our, this goes back to when the, uh, the earthquake hit. And um, we had an immediate need for water. And that was the number one thing that we needed. And somebody called uh, a friend in ministry and says, what can we do to help? And I said, we need 10 grand right now for a water purification system. He says, you'll have to check tomorrow. So that has been going to purify their water since the earthquake. And that goes back to 2010. So the filters obviously get worn out and it needs maintenance. So basically, Lane was requesting, once we get down there, can we go ahead and just take care of this need? And I said, well, we said, of course. That's uh, the number one thing that they need right now. And the other thing is we're working with other Calvary chapels to solve the greater need uh, with a complete water system, with a huge uh, purification system. Well, the gospel is primary. Uh, Before everything else, it's the salvation of a person's soul. And of course, we, as we read here, we want to be, but he who honors him has mercy on the needy. You know, Jesus said, you know, or was it Paul in the New Testament, it says, if you, if you see a brother who has a need and is within your capacity to do it and you do nothing, he says, well, how does the love of Christ dwell in you? The danger today is that people want to just do the works part of it without bringing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's, it is, we call it the social gospel. Uh, there, I gave a list on Sunday of some of those that are involved with the social gospel. Um, and great organizations that were really, really uh, Bible-centered uh, have just gotten off track. World Vision, unfortunately, is one of them where they've gotten off to be just into social works, and they've left off the gospel. So we've got to keep first things first. So I'm going to say amen. I'm doing all the talking up here. I need to hear somebody else talk for a while. So, you know, and this is what the exhortation is, is that we have to keep the main thing the main thing. But when you do that, there's just going to be a natural, if you're walking with the Lord, uh, you're going to see the need, and you're going to want to do what you can to respond. Some people don't have financial resources, so they, they say, well, what can I do to help out? I don't have the, uh, any extra money. Is there anything else I can do to uh, help meet that need? All right, let's finish up the, the chapter. Wisdom rests quietly in the heart of him who has understanding. But what is in the heart of fools is made known. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And I could spend the rest of the hour up here bemoaning, um, oh, the very sad and um, terrible position our country is in as we watch it slide down a slippery slope week after week. And um, as we see uh, our, our president waning more and more against Israel, um, Giving in, in the progress right now, everybody knows about the 150 billion wanting to be given to Iran. I made the point last week that that's more than 124.3 million that we've given billion that we've given to Israel since 1948, and um, they see the handwriting on on the wall, and. Um, Elijah Abraham is going to address that when he's here for our prophecy conference. What's really going on with Iran? And you'll be surprised by who he considers. He thinks you're going to get the bomb very, very quickly. But I don't want to steal his thunder by telling you a little bit about his message. But we talked for a long, long time because I respect his insights. He was born and raised in Baghdad. And he understands the Sunni Shiite war that's been going on for a long, long time. And that's really the issue. All right, that was a little teaser. But getting back, righteousness exalts a nation. There is no righteousness. We used to be called a Judean Christian nation. We are not. Uh, There are Christians that are here that are 
true Bible-believing, born-again people, but we are minority. There's no ifs, ands, and buts about that. Last verse, the king's favor is towards a wise servant, but his wrath is against him who causes shame. These verses, 15 to 35, I, I looked at them and saw that the biggest contrast is between the wicked and the righteous, what a wicked man does and what a righteous man does. And so I want to look at two examples that Jesus uses the term for a wicked servant in the New Testament. The first one is in Matthew chapter 18. So let's make our way there. And we're just going to go through a couple verses where Jesus uses the term who he considers to be a wicked servant. Matthew 18, picking picking it up in verse 21, Always a great message to talk about forgiveness and what it really is. In verse 21, we'll be reading 21 through 25, and we'll see where the Lord talks about a wicked servant. It said, Peter came to him and he said, Lord, how often should I, if my brother sins against me, shall I forgive him? Up to seven times. And I'm sure Peter thought he was really being big with this, the Pharisees taught at least three. Um, what Peter did is doubled it and add one more. So I thought, I think Pete thinks he's doing a pretty good job here. Seven times, Lord? And Jesus said, I say unto you, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who settles uh, accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Let's just say a million dollars to round it off. He owed him a million dollars. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he should be sold with his wife and children and all that he had so that the payment could be made. And a servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, please have mercy and patience with me and and I'll do my best to try to pay you all. And the master of that servant was moved with compassion, and he released him and forgave him the, him the debt. He said, I'll give it my best shot, but don't make my wife and my kid and myself go to a debtor's prison. He says, please have compassion on me. Uh, and, the, and he did. So the guy's on his way home, and he's got to be, feeling pretty good about being debt-free of a million dollars. But the servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, let's say 20 bucks. So he's just been forgiven a million, and he finds the guy that owes him 20 bucks, and he grabs him by the throat and says, pay me what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged, saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Now this is word for word that the other guy had just said to his master that he owed the million bucks to. And instead of showing the compassion that his master had, it says he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, well, they were grieved. And they came and they told their master, all that had been done. So now they go back to the guy that forgave the guy a million bucks. And then his master, after he had called, said to him, and here's why I came here, you wicked servant. Why was he wicked? Well, he had been shown compassion. And word for word, a guy that could have come up with the 20 bucks if you give him a week, he wouldn't do it. He said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant and had pity who had, as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the tortures until he should pay all that was due him. So he was forgiven, but because he wouldn't forgive, the tables are turned and now he is in debtor's prison till it's made right. And then he says, so my heavenly father also will do to you 
if each of you, and the next words are important, from your heart, does not forgive his brother, his trust passes. When somebody comes in with a problem, they, they say no matter what, and no matter how, I try. I simply cannot forgive what this person has done to me. Simply cannot do it. How do I do it? This is where I take them. And I tell them this. I said, in this parable here, um, you have a debt that nobody can pay. There's no way you can pay the debt. What is the debt? Your sin. Who do you owe it to? Your heavenly father. And there's no way that you can pay for it. And unless he has compassion on you and just wipes the record clean, the slate clean, and says, I forgive you of your sins. I'm not going to remember them anymore. I'm going to separate them as far as the east is from the west. And I said, that's you. I want, you, I want that to set in just for a second. It's something that you can never come up with financially or any other way. Now, you're having problems forgiving somebody who owes you 20 bucks. And that's, I put them in a story. I put myself in a story. Now, the idea, I think, I think confession is necessary for repentance. And um, without confession of, of sin, there really can be no forgiveness. So I believe when a brother comes to you and he says, would you forgive me? You say, yeah. Um, but if he continues to wrong you, then that's, a, I think, a different issue. But if there's this desire... Please be patient with me. I'll pay it up. I'll give you your 20 bucks. And you say no. Well, I'll tell you what's going to happen. If you're a believer, you're going to have a a lot of rough nights. You're going to be doing a lot of tossing and turning because you got an ought in your heart where somebody has asked you to forgive them, but from your heart, uh, you haven't. Now, I just want to add one more element to that. I've seen people say, okay, I'm, I'm forgiven, but boy, I'm not going to forget. You ever have that happen? I'll forgive you, but boy, I'm not going to forget. What that means is you haven't done it from your heart. So if this is for anybody tonight and you are harboring animosity and unforgiveness from somebody who has approached you and asked for forgiveness, you have no rights to hold that over them because you have been forgiven a debt that you can never, ever repay. And uh, as Jesus said, if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. But I usually like to tell people at the end of a heavy discussion like that, I says, you know, give it up already. Let go of it. Do you know that the guy that you're upset with probably is sleeping pretty good at night, but I bet you you're not. Do yourself a favor. If he wants to be forgiven, forgive him. For your sake, you're the one that's going through it. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? Amen. Okay, now we can go on. Let's go back to uh, um, let's go to Luke 19 for one more place where we have a wicked um, servant that Jesus talks about. Luke 19, uh, picketing it up in verse oh, 11. Uh, yeah, the parable of the talents. Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem, because they thought that the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Now there's a whole Bible study right there. They're on the way to Jerusalem. And the disciples are thinking, good, the Lord's finally going to take on Rome. He's going to establish the kingdom. Let's go for it. But therefore he said to him. And this is the context of what he's about to say because of their thinking that the kingdom was about to come. He said, A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And so he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten, we'll just say dollars, ten dollars, and said to them, Do business or occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was when he returned, having received the kingdom. Uh, So this is yet future. Uh, He then commanded these servants to whom he had given money to to be called to him, that he might know how much 
man each gain by the trading. Then came the first saying, Master, your dollar has earned ten more. And he said, Well done, thou good servant, because you have been faithful in a little, have authority over ten cities. Now this really gets my noodle thinking. On Sunday, we're going to talk a little bit about the difference between the Church of Jesus Christ, where their home is, and the nation of Israel, and where their home is. And that's all I'm going to tell you for now, but we're going to get into that, what we're going to be doing as the Bride of Christ, and what Israel will be doing as God's promise that he gave to David for this kingdom that would last for a thousand years. We sang it in Bill Bill Waters' song tonight. Um, Father, we pray thy kingdom would come. Well, that's talking about the thousand-year millennial reign. So that's coming up. It has not uh, come yet, obviously. And the second came, he said, Master, um, the dollar you gave me has earned five. And likewise, he said to him, you also are over five cities. And another came saying, Master, here is your mina, your dollar, which I kept. I put it away in a handkerchief because I feared you because, you know, you're a mean guy. Uh, You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. So here's another place where the Lord calls somebody wicked. What did he do that was wicked? Well, he had a... complete misunderstanding of the nature of his Lord. He said, you're just a mean meanie. And um, uh, what I'm saying here is anybody who knows the Lord knows that he's compassionate and um, lowly and meek in heart and spirit. He said, come and learn of me and my nature. He says, I'll give you rest for your souls. This guy doesn't have a clue. He doesn't have any idea who Jesus is, his master. And so instead of heeding the working part and occupy, stay busy. Be about my father's business. Jesus said it when he was 12. From then on, he said, don't you know, when Joseph and Mary came looking for him after he didn't show up for three days, he said, well, didn't you understand that I must be about my father's business? So we all have our, our jobs and our responsibilities, but our primary again, is occupying and investing. And um, when all is said and done, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says your whole life um, is going to be judged by how you occupied. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. And without getting too much into it, um, I don't want to take for granted that everybody understands what the judgment seat of Christ is. It's also referred to as the Bema seat, The Bema seat, we get the name from the Olympics. And when they had run the race, uh, the winner, Paul says, I run this race to win. They would put a wreath on them. And it was actually called the Bema judgment. So it's not a judgment in terms of your salvation, but the the things that you did for the Lord is going to be, what's going to be judged is what was your motive why did you do what you did, is, is what 1 Corinthians 3 is all about. Jesus said, when you do your good works, uh, do them secretly. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Because your heavenly Father who sees in secret will heal, reward you openly. But if you do your good works before men so they can be seen, you already got your reward. So that's what the judgment bema seat is all about about there, and um, these here, the first two, well, one had one buck, he got 10. Well, he's gonna be uh, rewarded accordingly. And um, it's interesting to me, he said over 10 cities. But this guy, the one that the Lord called the wicked servant, obviously, in my opinion, is not a Christian. He doesn't have any idea who the Lord is. He thinks he's an austere man. Uh, verse 23, why didn't you put my money in the bank that at my coming I might have at least collected the interest? And he said to those who stood by him, take the dollar from him and give it to the one who has 10. But they said to him, master, he's already got 10. 
For I say unto you that everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring him here to those enemies of mine who did not want me to rule over them. See, he's not a believer. He didn't want Jesus as the Lord of his life. And slay them before me. So I, I, I point out these two um, as examples if we're studying the Proverbs and if we're drawing a contrast between um, a wicked person and a righteous person, then the Lord gives us a couple examples in forgiveness in one, the importance in understanding as a believer, um, but also here um, encouragement uh, to serve the Lord. Because nothing else matters. If I said it once from the pulpit, I've said it a thousand times. Only one life, soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And little line, very poetic, but oh, how true it is. What was his name? Jim Elliott. I hope I can remember the saying. I I should not do this stuff, because now I've got to remember it. He is no fool who will lose what he cannot gain to gain what he cannot lose. Isn't that a great saying? He is no fool who will lose what he cannot gain to gain what he cannot lose. Dave Hunt was with Jim Elliott the night that he left the prayer meeting and went down to Ecuador, where he was, of course, killed when he landed to preach the gospel to those native tribes. But the truth is there. Um, Talking to Dave about Jim Elliott, he was an All-American. He could, could, uh, I think it was in basketball, if I remember right. I can't remember. But he was an All-American in in some sport. So he could have went in that direction. And yet, he he gave that up because he esteemed um, the gospel message more important. All right. Let's go back and... um, Look at chapter 15. Proverbs chapter 15. I'm going to read the whole thing and come back to the first verse. So follow along, please. It says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, but the mouth of fools pours forth foolishness. Now the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. A wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness uh, in it breaks the spirit. A fool despises his father's instruction, but he who receives reproof is prudent. In the house of the righteous there is much treasure, but in the revenue of the wicked is trouble. In the lips of the wise disperse knowledge, but the heart of the fool does not do so. And the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright in his delight. Now during the millennial kingdom, there will be offerings that are made. Um, we, we read that the... Um, the, the offerings that will be made, um, bar one that will not be, and that was the one that would we call Passover uh, or Yom Kippur. And if anybody during the millennial main tries to make that sort of a sacrifice, uh, the Lord says the sacrifice, that will be wickedness to him. Um, the sacrifice of the wicked is it would be an abomination to the Lord if you would offer a lamb during that time. That work has been done. Hebrews 10 over and over again says Jesus was, was sacrificed for one time and it never ever needs to be repeated again. But there will be um, some of the feasts that will be kept. Matter of fact, in the, in the prophets it says if, if the nations don't come up, to keep some of those feasts, and the Lord's will actually cause them, their country not to have rain during the millennium. Verse 8, verse 9, The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he who loves him who follows righteousness. 
And here's the heart of the matter again. It's it's an issue of love. Harsh correction is for him who forsakes the way. And he who hates reproof will die. Hell and destruction are before the Lord. So how much more the hearts of the sons of men? Uh, Teaching the, the, the glory of the kingdom that's coming, but warning the same time the perils and dangers of hell. Here we're told that the hell and destruction are, are always before the Lord. Um, just think about it for a second. How often a person dies and goes into eternity? How often he goes to heaven? How often does a person die and go to hell? That's what this verse means. It's always happening. So here is a soul that was created by our creator, God loves, and that's why it says it's ever before him because it's continually happening. Um, we, I talked to Pam Lenz this morning. It's the first time I had a chance to, to find out what happened. And uh, she told me the story about, about um, her mother and how she got in the accident that night. And um, in talking to her, I wanted to know uh, what, what was the result, what was the outcome. And she told me that uh, she had a piece um, to tell her, uh, her mother's husband just to do what he felt needed to be done. Her kidneys had shut down, and so she's home with the Lord. And I ask, you know, what a really a question I'm always afraid to ask is, did they know the Lord? And Pam says that um, uh, she was always talking about the love of the Lord, and she was confident that that her mom is, is with the Lord. But I bring it up only as an example, and I say this all the time too, you guys have no guarantees, I don't either. Are you gonna be here next week? I don't know. Anything can happen. And so that happens on a regular basis all the time. People are coming um, into this world, and uh, people are going. And so heaven and destruction are always before the Lord, conscious of everyone that makes it to heaven, and conscious of everyone that dies and goes to hell. So if the Lord is, if it's always before the Lord, so how much more the hearts should it be for the sons of men? Whenever I do a funeral, I, I have to go to Ecclesiastes, uh, where Solomon, also writing, says it's better to go to a funeral than it is to a party. I like to change it even more. I said, it's better to go to a funeral than to a Packer game. That usually gets the Wisconsin crowd more interested in what I'm saying. And he said, how can you say such a thing? He says, because the living will lay it to heart. You're not thinking about your mortality at a Packer game. You want the green and gold to win the game, period. But at a funeral, you're, you're... around people, around a casket usually, and you're contemplating, you have to, whether you admit it or not, your own mortality. That's why it's better to go to a funeral than it is to a Packer game. The living will lay it to heart. They'll actually think about something that's more important. And um, I'll just leave that with that. So we left off with hell and destruction ever before, so how much more the hearts of the sons of men a scoff, excuse me, a scoffer does not love one who reproves him, nor will he go to the wise. A merry heart makes a cheerful countenance, but by sorrow of the heart the spirit is broken. And the heart of him who has understanding will seek knowledge, but the mouth of fool feeds on foolishness. All the days of the afflicted are evil, but he who is of a merry heart has a continual feast. Um, Don't you just like, I like, everybody likes hanging with people that are usually upbeat and and positive and not usually fond about hanging around somebody who's always going through a trial, a perpetual trial. They always are in a trial. And the glass is always half empty. And that's what this is saying here. It's just, he is better to be of he who has a merry heart has a continual feast. And better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasures with trouble. Better is a dinner of herbs with love than a fatted calf with hatred. 
And a wrathful man stirs up strife. We'll see that when we, when we apply this here. A wrathful man stirs up strife. But he who is slow to anger allies contention. The way of a slothful man is like the hedges of thorns, but the way of the upright is a highway. And a wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish man despises his mother. Folly is joy to him who is destitute of discernment, but a man of understanding walks uprightly. And without plans or counsel, plans go astray. But in the multitude of counselors, they are established. There's always safety in bouncing big decisions, not only off the Lord, but getting advice from maybe older, mature believers. Say, hey, would you pray for me about this one? I could use some insider guidance. I got a big decision to make. And uh, the Bible says there's safety in a multitude of counsel. How's my time here? Okay, I got some. A man has joy by the answer of his mouth. And a word spoken in due season, how good it is. And the way of life winds upward for the wise, that he may turn away from hell below. So here we have hell mentioned in the Old Testament as a reality. The Lord will destroy the house of the proud, but he will establish the boundary of the widow. And the thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but the words of the pure are pleasant. And he who is greedy for gain troubles his own house, but he who hates bribes will live. The heart of the righteous study how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours forth evil. Now the Bible talks about we're to be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have inside of us. And um, we're to be ready for that in season and out, on the drop of a hat. You're saying, uh-oh, I'm in a divine appointment. Are you ready to respond? Well, it says here that the heart of the righteous man studies how to answer. And the Lord says, come, let us reason together. But do you have an answer for the hope that lies within you? And can you articulate the gospel? When's, I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on you, but let me just ask a question. When's the last time you told somebody about Jesus? When you were actually looking for an, off, an open door and praying for it, how can I sneak in there? And how, how can I start a conversation that might come around to the ways of the Lord? And again, this, I'm not trying to bring on a guilt trip. It's just really an honest answer if we've all been given the, the Great Commission. Good place for an amen. Come on, you can do better than that. Amen? Amen. Thank you. I'll go on and we'll finish this chapter. Which is only a couple more verses. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. And the light of the eyes rejoices the heart, and a good report makes bones healthy. It's good hearing good news. The ear will hear the report Proof of life will abide among the wise, and he who disdains instruction despises his own soul. But he who heeds reproof gets understanding. I think it's one of the hardest things it is to hear correction because we just don't like it. But what we're learning in Proverbs here is the wise person will at least listen and pray about it. The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. And we're going to see this verse fulfilled along the very last verse here and before honor is humility. And the very, let's go back to um, chapter 15, verse 1, and reread it again. And then I'm going to take you to a story that exemplifies this verse to the T. And it's going to be all the farther we're going to get tonight. And um, so we'll let, this, we'll let this sink in. It says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. But a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 26.20 says, Where no wood is, there the fire goes out. So when there's no tail bear, the strife ceases. Interesting proverb. Let's turn to 1 Samuel 
chapter 25, and I want to recount the story of David, Nabal, and Abigail. David is on the run from Saul in 1 Samuel 25, and this exemplifies perfectly in picture form Solomon's wisdom in a soft answer turning away wrath, but harsh words stir up strife. Let's pick it up in verse 2, and I'll skim some of this and I'll read some of this. In the first couple of verses here, the setting is Carmel. Carmel is on the coast. It's um, um, near Mount Carmel, of course, where um, Elijah uh, slew the 450 prophets of Baal. That's the location. So that's where he's at. And there was a man there who was very, very rich. said he had 3,000 sheep and uh, 1,000 goats, and, and he was shearing sheep in Carmel. And the guy's name in verse 3 is Nabal. And he had a wife whose name was Abigail, and then she's described for us here. She was a woman of good understanding. I mean, she had a good head on her shoulder. And she was in beautiful in appearance. Uh, but as far as Nabal, he was harsh, and he was evil in his doings, and he was from the, the house of Caleb. Now, when David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, I want you to go up to Carmel, and I want you to go to Nabal, and I want you, I want you to greet him in my name. So these ten guys come and say, hey, David sent us. And thus I want you to say to him who lives in prosperity, peace be to you, peace to your house, peace to all that you have. Now I, ha- I have heard that you have shears, uh, your shepherds, were with us, and uh, we didn't hurt them, and we didn't take anything from them while they were in Carmel. Um, go ahead, ask the young men, and they'll tell you. And therefore, uh, let my young men please find favor in your eyes, for we've come on a feast day, and please give us, give us whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son David. Now basically what he's saying is, look, we took care of your, your men while they were shearing. Nobody got near them. We were the watchdogs 24-7, and we made sure nobody messed with your sheep. And now David is saying it's a feast day, and um, he's looking to um, approach Nabal and to acknowledge the goodness that David did to Nabal. But instead... Uh, Here's where our first um, Proverbs comes. Grievous words stir up trouble. Here's where it happens. Look at verse 9. So when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to these words in the name of David, and then they waited. And then Nabal answered David and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away from his master. He's referring to David being on the run from Saul. He says, David's nobody special. Uh, Who doesn't try to break away from, from their master? Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I killed for my shears and give it to men who, who I do not know where they came from? So David's young men turned on their heels and went back and came and told all these words. And then David said, now here's where I want you to see. Nabal, with grievous words, is stirring up trouble by what he said to David. He's basically returning evil for good. And David said, that's what he said to you guys? Every man gird on his sword. So every man girded on his sword. And David girded on his sword. He didn't want to mess with David. Remember, Saul has killed his thousands. David his tens of thousands. Talk about an all-around man. 
He was a musician's musician. He was a warrior's warrior. And he was the king that is honored as a man after God's own heart. He, he, was, the, he was the whole deal. Who is David? So David straps on his sword, and there's about 400 men, and they went out with David. 200 stayed behind with the supplies. Now one of the young men told Abigail. Now this would be Nabal's wife that we're introduced to. She had a good head on her shoulders, and evidently she was a good-looking girl. And um, one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled him. But the men, they were very good to us, and we were not hurt, and nor was anything missing as long as uh, we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us by night and by day. All the time they were, all the while we were keeping the sheep. And he says, now therefore know and consider what you will do, for harm is certainly determined against our master and against our household. For he's such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. So now we're getting a little insight in the nature and character of Nabal. Um, Then Abigail, when she heard that, well, she made haste, took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, 500 loaves of bread, um, five sheep already dressed, five sheaves of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. We got quite a gravy train going out now to meet David. And she said to her servants, I want you guys to go out before me. And I'm going to come after you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. And so it was as she rode on the docking that she went under cover of the hill. And there was David and his men coming down toward her. And she met him. So David said, Surely in vain I have protected this fellow. Uh, Has in the wilderness so that Nothing was missed of all that belongs to him. David's just running this thing through in his head, getting hotter as, as he's going on. And he's repaid me evil for good. I, looked, I watched his back, and I protected him. And now he's, he's completely blown me off. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I find one male of all of him belonging to him alive by morning. David's going to take him out. Everything that belongs to Nabal isn't going to be there in the morning. Now when Abigail saw David, she hastened to dismount from her donkey, fell on her face before David, and bowed down to the ground. Before I read any farther, I'm going to read the last verse of chapter 15 again. And before honor, what comes humility? So here comes Abigail, good head on her shoulders. Uh, She is preceded by this gravy train of of food that's been sent to David. And this is how she approaches David. In humility, she says, So she fell at his feet and said, O my Lord, let this iniquity be on me. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears And hear the words of your maidservant. Although while I'm reading this, remember, a soft answer turns away wrath. Remember that, because here is a picture of it being played out. Please do not let my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal. For as his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name, and folly is his game. I sort of added the game part into that, just to make sure you're still listening. Surely folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men. I didn't know about this. I didn't know he said that. Of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and for avenging yourself for your own, for, from your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek harm from my Lord be as Nabal. And now, this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who 
who follow my Lord. She's calling him Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord and evil is not found in you throughout your days. Abigail heard about David. Nabal heard about David. Um, Abigail believed that he would be the king of Israel. I think Nabal knew it too, but was, was not acknowledging it. Verse 29, yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life, but the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living uh, with the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he will sling out as from the pocket of a sling. And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and he has appointed you ruler over Israel. Abigail knows who she's talking to. And she humbly falls down before him. She says, I know the Lord's going to wipe out your enemies. And I know that my stupid husband has, has caused you to take vengeance by yourself. Verse 31. And this will be no grief to you, nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause, or that, a lo- or that the Lord has a that my Lord has avenged himself. She's asking him, let the Lord deal with it, David. And please hear my repentive heart. My husband blew up big time. I'm here to try to make it right. And she's doing it with her face bowed down, humbly. And, um, but when the Lord has dealt with my Lord, and please read between the lines here, then remember your maidservant. She's got it all figured out already. Nabal blew off David? Well, the Lord's going to get ready to blow out Nabal, and she knows it. And so she says, David, do me a favor. When this is all over with, would you please remember me? I'll let your imagination just go there for a while, and you'll, you'll see the end of the story here in a minute. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed be your advice, and blessed be... Uh, I'm blessed are you because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed, and this is important, and from avenging myself with my own hand. What does the scripture say? The battle is of the Lord's. And doesn't it say, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord? Let's get back to the proverb. A soft answer turns away wrath. Do you guys see it? See this beautiful gal coming down and humbly just imploring David in humility. And David, when it's all said and done, will you please remember me? Because she knows what's going to happen. And David, what happened? David's heart was turned. A soft answer turns away wrath. In this case, it was David's wrath, and he thanked her. He says, I'm glad you did this, because I should have been doing it. I should have let the Lord take care of Nabal. Verse 34, for indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had had hastened to come to meet me, surely by morning's light no males would have been left to Nabal. So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said, Go up in peace to your house. See, I've heeded your voice, and I respect your persons. My wrath has been turned away because of your soft answer. Then Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was holding... um, a feast in his heart, like the feast of a king, and Abel's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. And so it was in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal and his wife had told him this, these things, he said, Nabal, let me tell you what I did yesterday and what, who I met, 400 men with David, and they were coming to have a little powwow with you. And Nabal and his wife had told him all these things that his heart died within him and he became like a stone. All right, reality sets in. Then it happened after about 10 days that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. So the Lord did avenge David. Now, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, 
Praise the Lord. (laughs) Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and kept his servant from evil, for the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. And then the next words out of his mouth, and David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as his wife. He looked at her when she came and he, he saw this beautiful, humble, gracious woman who said to him, David, by the way, when this is all said and done, would you remember me? What's David doing right now? It's all said and done. What's the next thing that comes out of his mouth? Go fetch Abigail. Propose. And I think she was doing the proposing a little bit earlier, but David definitely took her up on it. And when David... uh, um, verse 40, when the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her saying, David sent us to you to ask you to be his wife. And then she arose, bowed her face to the earth and said, here is your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servant of my Lord. And um, here she knew that she was marrying the next king of Israel. She was all too well aware of it. And she has this beautiful Humility, and that's the last thing we read in Proverbs. Uh, Before there's honor, what is there? There's humility. And the picture is such a beautiful picture. What a great love story. So Abigail rose in haste and rode on, on donkeys attended by five of her maidens. And she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. And um, David took a Hinnom of Jezreel, and so both of them were his wives. But Saul gave Michael his daughter to uh, David's wife to uh, uh, Peltai, the son of Laish, who was from Galim. Um, let's go back to chapter 15, and we'll read it one last time. When we're wrong, um, we want to take often matters into our own hands. And yet, clearly, another act of if you have faith or not, Chuck used to always say this, you can fight your own battles if you want to. You can fight your own battles if you want to. And you might have every rational justification, reason why you should take this person out. And David had rightly had good reason to. But if he's representing the Lord, then that's the Lord's dealing. And that's up to the Lord to do it. Question is, do you have the faith? Words can stir up or words can come down. And as we go through the Proverbs, so much of it is about the tongue. So the closing verse is a soft answer, turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Nabal's harsh words stirred up David to the point where he was ready to take out every male in his camp. And Abigail's humble, soft uh, answer turned away the, honor, uh, the anger of David and uh, she was honored. How was she honored? Well, she became one of the queens of Israel, the wife of David. Got it? Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. And um, what a great love story this is between David and Abigail and how you have your ways of working it out Lord, when we get uh, short-tempered and we want to take matters in our hands, Lord, help us remember tonight and um, knowing that we can fight our own battles if we want to rather than allowing you to be strong on our behalf. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. We just pray you bless your people now as we go out this evening. Thank you for these rich chapters in the Proverbs. And we pray that you'd help us retain them and apply them practically this day and this coming week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.